we're back. Hello and welcome to the new ASMR edition of Americans Watching the Footy. I'm Ethan Castle. I am Benjamin Castle. Tonight we have a very special program for you, featuring the sounds of Velcro. You may have heard that Max King will miss the opening rounds of the season. He suffered a shoulder injury in training. Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. This is Buddy Franklin. This is the greatest showman. Got the handle off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Oh, who else? McDonald. In all seriousness, we're back. This is episode 70 of Americans Watching the Footy. A lot has happened in the past month and a half or so since we last recorded. We last talked when it was uh, just after the trade period. We've gone through a lot more news since. The draft has come and gone. You still haven't finished your We Didn't Bounce the Sharon video. Yeah, a number of things happened there. It's going to be a fun little end-of-year thing to post everywhere, including r slash AFL. Just kind of having a visual accompaniment to the song that I had at the end of a recent episode, which was pretty good by me. Took a lot more effort than you may have thought. So, yeah, a lot of shit has happened. I didn't realize until I was going through stuff for our notes for this episode that we hadn't even recorded since before Ross Lyon officially got rehired by St. Kilda. So I guess we'll start with that. He coached there from 2007 to 2011. Led him to grand finals twice. Well, three grand finals, actually. As we're recording this on December 5th, Craig Vazo has not yet been fired as Essendon CEO. In fact, he's already lasted five times longer than his predecessor. Yeah, so congratulations to Vazo on that front. He was previously at the Eagles for a decade plus, was a general manager of football, and then senior corporate counsel for a little bit. A lot of people thought he would end up succeeding Trevor Nisbet as CEO, so it's definitely a loss for West Coast in that respect. I mean, I'm wishing some more stability for Essendon because as fun as it is to clown on a team for just being completely inept, I don't want both red and black teams to be like that. Also, Travis Blackley's cool, and I don't want him to continue suffering. What's amazing is now Essendon has drafted some players that were born after their last finals win. Also of note, a couple of departures at Geelong. Eddie Betts is leaving so that he can do more with his foundation, supporting young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in sport. I'd say in one year, he did far more than anyone could have asked him to do in decades, considering that he brought Tyson Stengel in, helped him get his life on track, and helped win the grand final. I was going to say, you saw Eddie just having those sorts of proud father moments in the late stages of the grand final. It was amazing to watch. I love the insight that he gave in Fox footy. Not sure if he'll be continuing in that role as a boundary writer or studio commentator, but 
hopefully we'll be able to still get some insight in that respect out of him. I, I just hope that Tyson's in a position where he doesn't need quite as much hands-on support. Exactly. You know, I'm sure he'll still be able to consult with Eddie whenever he needs, but as long as he doesn't need, you know, that sort of like in-house assistance, I'm excited to see more of him as a player because he's really good. Also, club legend Harry Taylor was working with the team for a year as the head of medical and conditioning services, but he's going back to Western Australia to be closer with his family. And longtime head of football, Simon Lloyd, could be in the mix to be the new CEO at North. I wish I had more insight regarding some of these things, regarding the Ross Lion hiring, but because we're so new to the game, I mean, we don't really have that much to go off. From what I've seen looking back at some old St. Kilda footage, I know that Lyon had you know, some low-scoring, very strong defensive teams with a couple stars up forward, especially with the likes of Nick Revolt. The difficulty with St. Kilda is they're in a spot where they're going to, I think, need to rebuild to some extent, and I'm not sure how much they're going to try and fast-track that with one of their most successful coaches in recent memory back at the helm. Yeah, even before the Max King news, seeing Ryder leave, I think, really leaves a huge hole that's going to be a difficult one to fill, even at his advanced age. And I don't think they're going to be able to recapture that form they had when they started, what was it, 8-2? and 8-2, and 8-3. and three. They had reverse records the first and second half of the season. And look, the thing we talked about last season with them is that having Ryder and Marshall able to kind of relieve each other in the ruck and then the other push up forward, help them so much when King was inaccurate a lot of the time and having that that secondary target to take some heat off him. You don't expect Jack, 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 Jack Hayes to be able to do all that, especially when he isn't nearly as natural of a ruck. I mean, he did have outstanding performances earlier in the season before he tore his ACL, but he's a mature age recruit to begin with. And he's no All-Australian. Also, their defense just isn't that good, and it looked like an issue at the start of the year, and then it subsided for a while, and then it presented itself again. I just, as I've said for a while, I don't understand the direction they're going in at all, other than that I like Marcus Windhager as a tagger. Windhager as a tagger, Mitch Owens starting to develop on the smaller side, but if they're going to try and fast-track this rebuild, they're going to be running into some problems because they didn't do nearly enough this offseason. I mean, what did they do in the trade period? They did fuck all. I mean, Ben Long's now at Gold Coast. I knew he was wanting to get on get bigger opportunities there. Other than Zane Cordy, who did they really bring in? And Cordy's someone that I think is going to have to push forward and be one of those taller targets as well. Fox Footy just an hour ago posted, you know, every club's best 22 for round one. Zane Cordy is not included in that. Neither is Mitch Owens. The only new guy is Matthias Filippo, who was the 10th overall pick in the recent draft. That said, maybe this every club's best 22 for round one thing shouldn't be taken that seriously, considering they misspelled Brandon Parfit's first name, and Brian isn't even included in that best 22, and they've got Tom Hawkins in there, assuming he's going to be healthy, and yeah, this this is kind of clickbait. It's off-season content. Not surprising that it's clickbait, especially from Fox Footy. Fox's Instagram is very clickbaity more often than not, and I need to stop using them as a source. I, I guess, even though we're going to kind of zigzag around a little bit out of order, um, draft stuff, I guess we should talk draft stuff now because that kind of bridges into it. Unlike the NFL draft, the NBA draft, 
even though I don't watch the NBA, I watch a shit ton of college basketball. So I have insight there. I have very little insight on the AFL draft because I simply don't have the exposure to what these guys have done at the youth and junior levels, in part because the games aren't as readily available, in part because this is a really busy time of year for me. Um, I've been up to a lot lately with my job, which is a good problem to have. A lot of stuff with high school football and basketball. Um, Don't want to deviate too much, but I'm going to a pretty prestigious basketball tournament that's held in a tiny farm town in a couple days, which is going to be a really fun thing to see, especially when one of the teams has a couple of foreign players. See what kids from Cameroon, Dr. Congo, because it's not DR Congo, it's Dr. Congo and New Zealand. I mean, I guess New Zealand's pretty familiar with farm life, but see them all go to this small town. It's going to be fun. Yeah, I mean, definitely going to watch out for some more of the Nat League action going forward, forward, was able to catch some of the national championships, but not that much to be able to divine a whole lot compared to what was already out there. The beginning of the draft did largely play out as expected. There was a whole crazy mega trade that saw all of the top four picks plus some others change hands, but it went as expected for the most part. The Giants did take Aaron Cadman, key forward from Vic Country, first overall, then... North bid on Will Ashcroft, which the Lions, of course, matched. You saw George Wardlaw go to North. Perhaps the biggest riser is one that we were really happy to see. Harry Sheasel. Well, I wasn't so happy to see it because I wanted him to drop to Geelong. I knew that Geelong were looking for Jai Clark in the first place, but awesome to have a Jewish player in the AFL. I know that Todd Goldstein is Jewish through his father, but if um, but especially in Orthodoxy, Judaism is passed through the maternal line. And so... If you're wanting to be technical about it, yes, Harry Sheasel is the first Jew to be drafted into the AFL in a number of years, maybe a couple of decades, and he's got Goldie as a teammate. You know, I wish I could say more about Jai Clark. I mean, I watched the highlights the club posted of him, and looks like he's able to handle physical marking contests. He's you had know. a lot of Joel Selwood comparisons. I mean, there's only so much you can say until you see him in action with the pros, the 20-plus-year-olds. Plus... I just don't have enough of a background to be able to say, like, I need to see a guy do this at this level. Whereas, like, I can tell you, I can go on and on about what makes a really good high school basketball player that will and won't translate to the college level and things like that. I can't tell you jack shit about what translates from playing in the NAP League to playing in the AFL. Yes. Just, that's going to take some more years and some more opportunities to watch things at that level. By the way, you mentioned Joel Selwood, so he's going to be in a role with the Melbourne Storm? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, he's going to be the leadership coach. I mean, if you're, you know, he's a he's kind of the king of intangible, gritty leadership aspects, so that seems to be a pretty good match, and I think it's cool for him to just be in a position in his life where he's done everything he could in his field and now just wants to try something different just because. I know that some people were saying, have him on staff at Geelong, honestly. I think it would be tough for someone, you know, who's just come off that career they've had, playing alongside these guys to now enter more of an official coaching role. I was expecting to see him maybe at a different club, but good for him for trying something else, stepping away from Australian rules football for a bit as he gets this new part of his life going. He's starting a family at long last. Good things for the Selwoods. You know... I think it would be weird for him to be at another club as a coach, being a one club guy. But, it, you know, it would be one of those things where maybe if he waits a few years and then comes back to coach at Geelong, 
it would make a lot more sense than to do it in the immediate aftermath. I think you kind of, it's beneficial. And this isn't just here. This, this is kind of a universal thing that applies to pretty much all sports. If you're a recent player, you probably want to give it a little bit of time for some roster turnover, just for the dynamic, because it can be weird. You know, there are probably a few people out there who can like retire and become a coach immediately. And everyone loves having him around. And yes, people love having Selwood around, but still it's, it's weird, especially, you know, like, Whoever the new captain will be, if he's kind of breathing down their neck, that could be that could be unusual. That could be uncomfortable. I'm going to say it now, Tom Stewart. I'd love it to be Tom Atkins just because he's kind of that blue guy. But I think it's going to be Tom Stewart. I'd be totally fine with that. Or Mitch Duncan, I think. Could go in the older direction there. Or you could go in the complete opposite direction and go with Sam DeConing. I thought you were going to say Grian Myers. I mean, I'm all for Captain Grian, don't get me wrong, but... I think Sam DeConing would be fun, especially if he gets to keep wearing trophies as hats. We've done the Geelong piece about the Eagles. Again, don't know as much about some of the waffle prospects that they got, but I'm glad that they went local for their first two picks. Getting Ruben Ginby, ninth overall, can play both midfield and defense. He comes over from East Perth and Elijah Hewitt at 14 from the Swan Districts, a midfielder that's willing to be physical. Had some real questions about the West Coast midfield this past year, and hopefully he'll be able to shore things up there, both of them. But for a rebuilding out-of-state team, I think it's really important that you're looking ahead toward talent retention and that you focus on your in-state players as much as possible in recruiting. You know, a problem very unique to Australian sports. I mean, I think it's really cool, actually, you know, the attachment of local guys to local teams because... Like, it's a pretty rare thing in American sports. I mean, it's less rare if, you know, it's a huge metro area, like L.A. guys playing for L.A. teams, etc. Dallas guys playing for Dallas teams, but generally it's rare. Like, I love that the Minnesota Twins always seem to have an emphasis on having Minnesota guys. I mean, thinking guys like Maurer, of course, from back when we were younger. Oh, not just Joe Maurer, a lot of, like, far less notable guys. When the Oakland A's had a guy from Berkeley and Marcus Semi and a guy from San Jose and Mark Canna. Go Bears for both of them, by the way. And now they're on to better teams. Yeah, let's see. Recent Minnesota Twins. A couple current ones. Louis Varland and Matt Walner. Uh, Caleb Thielbar. Glenn Perkins, who's now on their broadcast team. Cole DeVries. I forgot, most- I forgot that Paul Molitor and Jack Morris are Minnesotans as well. Most two of these of their, two of their best players. Most of these names are probably going over most of your heads, unless you're Travis Blackley and listening. Oh yeah, the Twins are also definitely like the team that's had the most Australian ties. So like they should be Australia's team. But it's like Minnesota doesn't have a massive population. 22nd most populous out of 50. So it's cool that they have that tie. But yeah, I I like this idea of, you know, really having to recruit your local area, it's it's like kind of this college-ish aspect because American college sports, you know, you build your team by recruiting guys and a lot of it has to do with, you know, the most successful teams typically, A, have good talent in their immediate area and B, attract said talent, such as Georgia, number one team entering the college football playoff. Of course, Georgia then has one of their best players be from Napa. Yeah, if you've watched any college football, I just want to note Brock Bowers, who's one of the main end zone targets for Georgia and one of the best tight ends in the country overall. I would hear his name every week because he's like 90 minutes from here. Wine country. I guess you can draw that college comparison, but 
I guess it's even more appropriate considering the age at which you're recruiting these guys because these players are being drafted at age 18. And, you know, when they are immediately thrust from school age into their professional sporting careers, it can make sense why the ties to home are so strong and why so many of them want to end up being around their families again so quickly. So good on the Eagles for keeping that local emphasis as they're looking to build up. I know the there was talk about this on the Mason Cox show as well, like the local ties. And I think it's just, for example, people don't move from city to city in Australia as much as they do in America. Like, for example, if you go to Denver, you'll have, you know, a bunch of people from the West Coast, a bunch of people from the Midwest. You mentioned it, I think, an episode or two ago that you'll have a, a bunch of people from Indiana. Yes, like you could go or you could go into like any suburban California classroom right now. And say, look to the left of you. Now look to the right of you. Half of the people in this room will move to Austin by the age of 26. But, um, yeah, it's just, you don't have as much of that in Australia. Like, well, look at how far major cities are from each other as part of that. I don't think that's the only reason. I think some of it's also cultural. Of course. Um, but it's something else to factor in. I mean, when 2% of the area of the country is 98% of the population Either you're on the coast in one of these major cities, or you're working for, for the government or aerospace and something in Alice Springs. By the way, listening to the Mason Cox show has also helped me with a lot of, you know, cultural learnings of Australia for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan, including I just learned today that in Australia, after singing Happy Birthday, people usually chant hip hip hooray, and then sometimes like sing really nasty stuff about the person which I just love and am totally here for and really want to adopt that. I also love the idea of, you know, like an Australian person coming to an American birthday party and they try to start the hip hip hooray chant and everyone just looks at them. Getting back to the draft, the one other team that I really enjoyed following in this draft cycle, even though, you know, they didn't have the high picks, was Sydney, just because they figured, let's wreak as much havoc as we can without even selecting a player. When you've got the ability to bid on the players that other teams want, yeah, jump at that opportunity. Make them pay more. I love what the Swans did by bidding twice in a row. First for an academy selection from GWS. Second, a father-son pick from Adelaide. Yeah, fuck a gentleman's agreement. Seriously, I love this. A couple years ago, the NHL had this whole thing between... The Carolina Hurricanes tendering an offer sheet to a guy from the Montreal Canadiens where people thought, oh, Montreal is just going to be able to retain this guy as a restricted free agent. I am totally in favor of screwing with other teams as much as possible. And I regret not being able to stay awake for draft stuff because I would love to see this all unfold. Like I think back to, for example, the one I think of all the time with like funny draft moves and things like that where the Ravens starting with the number eight pick and then trading down to like 26 and then back up to 18 and then drafting a QB that went on to win them a Super Bowl. A quarterback that we've met. And anyway, I just, these scenarios are fun because they lead to a lot of great what ifs. And I think if you can mess with teams, if you can drive up the price, if you can, you know, for example, like draw a comparison to the NFL, the Jacksonville Jaguars are generally not a well-run organization but they overpaid for Christian Kirk, a wide receiver, and basically just jacked up the entire market and fucked up a lot of other team salary cap situations. Now, I'm not sure if they were trying to do that. You never know because their GM is pretty dumb. But I hope it was by design because, again, if you can overpay someone 
and completely screw up everyone else by inflating the market, it's awesome. And I've been on the record here as saying I think the price for father-son picks is too low, as is, and that you should have to pay a pick that's closer to where you're drafting, maybe that round or the round below. So good on Sydney for taking advantage of something that is often, you know, just kind of a pittance of a trade and really making teams stretch themselves thin a little bit for it. There were a couple other father-son picks that were late that were no surprise whatsoever. Uh, Alan Davies' kids getting picked by Essendon, Brent Harvey's kid by North Melbourne. Those were at the end of the draft because that's where most of those are. But the past couple of years, we've had a couple really high father-son picks that have kind of shaped some of the trades with teams getting the picks that the picks and the points that they need. And that was something that was interesting to follow this past trade period with the Lions, needing to be able to get enough for two father-son bids between Ashcroft and Jasper Fletcher. Yeah, my thing with the whole father-son stuff, I think you can basically hold a team hostage, and I think that's fine. You know, ultimately, it's right for both sides to come to a deal in this case. As much as I'm anti-gentleman's agreement, I think this is something that's a little different. But... You know, get what you think is truly an appropriate return. You know, try to negotiate, start by asking for more than you realistically think you can get, and then go through the whole bartering and haggling sequence. You know, you got to haggle with people like the scene in Monty Python's Life of Brian. It was for a fake beard. Yeah, I think that was, that was part of the movie where, like, everyone, you know, like, only the men can go stone someone to death. So all these women buy fake beards so they can go join in, and Brian buys a fake beard. I think that's what it was. I got to go back and watch it again. Great movie. I think it's probably better than Holy Grail. Kind of a hot take, but I I stand by it. Also, I've got one other hot take. It's kind of a seasonally appropriate one. I'm not a fan of Christmas music, but Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time is a fucking banger, and I can listen to that all day. Okay, that definitely is a hot take because I'm fucking sick of Wonderful Christmas Time. It's like the one Christmas song I can handle. Maybe it's just because I hear it so much at places where I am for work that I'm just sick of nearly any and all Christmas music. See, that's when that fits right into what I usually think about Christmas music. You know, it's the same few songs covered over and over again, and most of them get annoying after like two or three days. So <laughs> people who start listening to Christmas music in November, whether it's November 1st or the day after Thanksgiving, are fucking insane. Look, if there's any, one... There is one Christmas thing that I can't get tired of. It's like the the Vince Guaraldi stuff from Charlie Brown Christmas, like Christmas time is here, that stuff. Kind of the more mellow or melancholy stuff like that I like just because got some memories tied to that. I don't know. Just these that one's just interesting to listen to and just not, you know, far too saccharine. But yeah, um I could listen to Paul McCartney's wonderful Christmas time on repeat. I don't know if it could I could go for it like as long as you could go playing What's New Pussycat in a row. I imagine Australians know John Mulaney. I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't. All right, so draft stuff. Yeah, I think we just about covered that. Rookie draft, nothing surprising happened. It was a lot of guys... Hold up. A lot of guys that had been delisted and then were expected to come back through the rookie draft did so. I don't get why it's become this way. That's just, hey, let's just retain players for less. I mean, these players seem willing to take a pay cut. I remember Eddie Betts was put on the rookie list when he went back to Carlton. Now Phil Davis is on the rookie list for GWS. Yeah, there should probably... The league should probably close up that loophole because... Hold on. How old is he, 35? Because Phil Davis is 32 and has played in 192 games. 
So I'm really not a fan of that. I think it's just like ripe for exploitation. It's just totally against the purpose of the rookie draft. Geelong locked up father-son pick Oscar, not Oscar, Oscar Riccardi. I think the showdown of the century would be Oscar Riccardi versus Isco Alarcon. I feel like that's pretty topical with the World Cup going on. I mean, he's not on the national team anymore, but fair enough. Yeah, I had, you know, they had talked about Riccardi months ago, and now he's officially here. So, yeah, nothing surprising there. Yeah, the only surprising thing was that it was an investigation that came out of a player that was just retained in the rookie draft. Isaiah Winder of the Eagles is being investigated by police following an incident in Geelong at the Indigenous and Multicultural Players Summit. It seems like there was just kind of a drunken fight in which he was involved, maybe the primary party. He's been stood down from AFL training until the new year as the investigation continues and obviously we'll be following that. Winder is a guy that I had wanted to get more opportunities last year because some of the glimpses of him that I had seen I really liked had one three-goal performance in there, I think. And in general last year, I don't think the Eagles tested out the depth or lack thereof of their list nearly enough. You got to see what you have and how they're and how ready some of them are at the AFL level. And I don't think they did that to the extent that they should have last year. Sure, they farewelled Josh Kennedy in a pretty appropriate way, even though they didn't win. Other than that, though, I think they bungled a lot of later season things, especially once, especially after those couple rounds where they played well against Geelong and then beat Essendon, started seeing some things there. Should have kept going by testing out some more of the younger guys. And they were in a tough situation in the Waffle. And they were in a tough situation in the Waffle to begin with, considering some of the restrictions on Eagles reserves and how many AFL-listed guys you could have in there. So they should have gone for more. I had been saying that as well. I'd like to see the San Jose Sharks be doing that right now. But instead, guys like Scott Reedy and William Eklund are with the Barracuda. Thomas Bordalo. And we get to watch. I mean, I know... Their forwards and Matt Benning's a defenseman, but I really don't like watching Matt Benning. Hopefully, if hopefully when Nikolai Kanijal comes back, he'll take Benning's spot, but I don't see it. I don't know. It's, it's sad. It is. This Footy's less sad, you know? Like, watching the NFL just makes me angry most of the time. Footy stuff makes me happy. You know? In footy, you don't have an idiot offensive coordinator called the wide receiver pass into triple coverage play. Uh, Ireland. Leave this one to you. Yeah, well, there's this theme of a few players returning to the AFL. One of them comes out of Ireland, and it's Connor McKenna, who was one of the first players that I had really learned about a lot of from social media back in 2020 when I was getting into the footy, because he was being vilified for, get this, getting sick. So back before round three in 2020, the day before Essendon was set to play Melbourne, McKenna tested positive for covid caused the game's cancellation, ended up being postponed to round 18, and he just became a public enemy in Australia for getting sick, treated terribly by the media, by the fans, and a lot of that sort of treatment and the harassment he got from that prompted his return home, which was a real shame because what we'd seen from him was some exciting stuff, kind of as a halfback flank, translating really well from the Gaelic game, incorporating some fundamentals from there. Sometimes notable clips of him kind of doing the solo thing, kind of bouncing the ball straight up to himself off his foot. And he clearly didn't lose a step because 
The next year, 2021, he was back home in County Tyrone in Northern Ireland and won the All-Ireland Senior Football Championship. Was the fourth AFLer to win Gaelic football's biggest championship. The All-Ireland Championship, which is almost as big a deal as the All-England Best Kept Lawn Competition. You know, quick cross-podcast reference. It's funny, like, how a couple years ago, you know, it was like, if you got COVID, it's your fault, you're a bad person. And then it changed to, you know, oh, I'm triple mask, triple vax, I did everything right. And this this was discussed, I guess, about a calendar year ago almost now by the host of Habibi Bros. So if you want, like, some sort of conservative-leading American political coverage, check out Habibi Bros. It's, I mostly just listen for the comedy aspect. It's two Arab-American guys, Siraj Hashmi and Mujahid Kobe, um, really, really dirty a lot of the time. So just be aware of that. But I think they're hilarious. And I don't always agree with them. But like when I don't, I'm, it usually sparks good discussion. And they're, they're very open to that. But yeah, this, this COVID thing, I mean, it was, it was funny seeing them kind of humorously track the change in how everybody thought about COVID. And, you know, in the beginning, you had that sort of nastiest part of it all over the world, especially in a lot of the zero COVID places like Australia, where if you got COVID, you became just a target for the public. I mean, China kind of took that to a crazy level, by the way. Just just want to mention for anyone who was like simping for lockdowns and stuff, just please look at China. And I think we're getting taken off the air now. Oh, yeah. Crap. Uh, we're never going to work with Disney after that. Disney will definitely not take us on. Look, do not follow us on TikTok. We will never be there. The only good thing on TikTok is James Draws. I, I think we need to bring what happened uh, to, to Fuddy. I'm already totally here for this. So, yes, McKenna is back in Australia. He'd had interest from Essendon for a reunion. Also, Ford and the Saints. He's going to be a Brisbane Lion, though, as if that list weren't crowded enough already. I really think this could be, now that they've shown they can win a couple of finals... Maybe the Lions can actually get over that hump now. I think if there's a year for them to do it, this coming year is going to be it because pretty soon you're going to see teams like Frio really enter their final form. This is the year where the Lions really need to go all out at this flag. I think, you know, doing kind of like the way Geelong was able to stagger guys resting and things like that last year was huge. The Lions are definitely able to do that now, even with a bit of a younger team. You're going to have, you got guys like, Darcy Wilmot already fighting for spots to get in with, even with how he performed in the finals. And now that you've got Josh Dunkley in as well. I mean, some of what the Cats were able to do was set up by some of their early season success. But I think they went in with this idea and a lot of things did fall into place to make it easier and easier. But I think they went in with the idea of, you know, we're going to rest these guys sporadically. And, you know, with all the winning they were doing, it lined up really nicely, but I think some of it was pre-planned and then that combined with kind of hitting everything at the right time. Speaking of Geelong and Ireland stuff, it all ties together very nicely because O'Sheen Mullen from County Mayo is coming to the Cats a year later than initially planned. He was initially signed November of 2021, but then the deal for him to come over was called off in early January of this year. Now he's coming over for real, it looks like, and I guess the Irish to Geelong pipeline will continue. I mean, 
Zach Chewies was a bit circuitous going through Carlton, but Mark O'Connor, I mean, Irish Premiership players two and three. And I think he may have been spending some time with Mark O'Connor because I know there was something involving him being over in Dingle. Yeah, I literally just read this. Um, when O'Connor went home to go play for his GAA team in their club championship and some of the Cats players were there, including including Ryan, they a bunch of them just kind of ended up at the same bar on the same night, not even planned. So pretty great coincidence there. And, you know, they got more culture than a yogurt container, a, a, a Petri dish. There's 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 a pun to be made there. More um, culture than I don't, I don't know. This seems like something John Rothstein. We need Australian John Rothstein. We, we'll just right? leave the culture puns to the chaps. We need. Do we need to become the Australian John Rothstein here? Just like a what would it be? Um, like a his name is Justin Longmuir, and he aligns Rubik's cubes. Finn McGinnis, buy stock now. Nathan O'Driscoll, buy stock now. Look, I think we're all right investors here. You were very early on the O'Driscoll train there. So O'Sheen Mullen, by the way, 180 centimeter defender. I thought he was bigger. I think I got him confused with someone, but I know he's pretty good in the physical side of things. I don't know if he's going to really be able to crack the lineup quickly. I hope he kind of works his way up through the VFL. I do love that the Caps have really made these Irish ties, even with Stefan Okunbor ending up going back to Ireland, which worked very well for him. Okunbor was an unused substitute in the All-Ireland Senior Final this past year, which his carry team won by four over Galway. Before we continue, we're going to do an ad break. Something's got to pay the bills. And also, we're just thankful for the platform that we use being so good. And so we'll be back in just a second. Get up and fill your water if needed. All that good stuff. Yes, thank you to Anchor by Spotify for hosting this podcast. And thank you to all the other podcast networks that host us. You can also follow us on Twitter at AmericansFooty. Individually, I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. That's Castle with a K. Brian's on Instagram at Kathleen Brian. He was resting on my bed earlier because he's a good nephew. So we talked about some players coming over from Ireland. How about some players from Australia unretiring? Um, there's one that had been speculated for a while. Well, actually two. Let's go over the one that maybe we aren't as excited about for a couple reasons. Maybe just because we aren't as attached to Liam Shields as we are the other guy. He had retired from Hawthorne. He had been there for his whole AFL career, 2009 through 22, a triple premiership player. Now he's rejoining Alistair Clarkson at North. They're definitely going with experience in some areas. I mean, they brought in Griffin Logan, Darcy Tucker through the care package. I like the way the AFL did that care package, not just awarding draft picks that are high, but saying you've got to trade these draft picks and make something out of them. As I've said before, I'm not a fan of the care package thing in general. Yes, but this was a better way to do it. I think the best way for teams to do it is just not suck. But um, the more significant of the two, at least to us... I think it's more significant to most people. And this is no disrespect to Liam Shields, who's a pretty accomplished and decorated player, but... Walla's back! From the football side of things, most of Essendon's issues last year were defensive, but... They did lack, like, a small goal sneak type forward, so and just this will help. In general, the pressure that Walla brings all over the field, they were lacking. You could see that just 
the lack of sort of open field tackles that they were getting and that a lot of movement through the middle for other teams was a good deal easier than it could have been otherwise. They never really made up for his departure. And now, thankfully, he's back. Great that he's in a better place mentally and willing to resume his footy career. A little side thing. Hopefully, they bring back that Dreamtime jumper that he designed so that he can actually play in it. That would be cool. Anyway, I'm I'm just very happy he's back. I think we all are. Yeah, Fremantle had been reported to be an early leader for McDonald Tipping Woody, but he's staying at Essendon, and I think that's just a victory in itself that he's back. And hopefully, Brad Scott has a good relationship with him. Yeah, through all this, you might have forgotten that Essendon has a new coach as well. And they did the old one super dirty, if you don't recall. It was just kind of a mess of an August and September for Essendon, and we roasted them, I think, enough already. The interesting thing out of this coaching cycle is that we've had so many retread coaches come back, as opposed to first-time head coach hires in the AFL. I did some research on this last month once Ross Lyon was announced. So this offseason, there have been three retread hires. Alistair Clarkson at North, Brad Scott at Essendon, Ross Lyon at St. Kilda. That's as many as there were over the prior seven offseasons combined between 2015 and 21. I'm not sure what exactly prompted a reversal of that trend, but the only first-time head coach hire in the AFL this year is Adam Kingsley for Greater Western Sydney. You know, this is another thing where I can apply my perspectives from American sports, but I don't think that would be very helpful. But within, like, American college sports, I'm very anti-retread hire. Don't know if that can apply here, but generally, if someone's been fired from a prior coaching job, unless they were really young and have been able to learn something, like, for example, MLB manager Gabe Kapler, I don't think you're going to get much more out of them than what they already gave. And usually they were fired for a reason. And I'm all in favor of trying something new and going in a new direction and making new mistakes. I mean, these past, from 2015 to 21, there were 13 first-time hires compared to three retreads. And maybe the prevailing logic across the AFL was, this wasn't working, let's go back to, to a known quantity. I mean, Simon Goodwin ended up panning out. Chris Fagan's looking all right. Craig McRae, can't say enough about him, but... Just overall, some failures of hires, I guess. Before we move on to some player and training news and and things that impact the first few rounds of this coming season, it's been so long since we recorded that we haven't even discussed the Brownlow scandal. And this is something that I've been following since it was first uncovered. So this doesn't impact the result of the Brownlow count itself, as far as we know. That is very securely audited and delivered on the night. This involves the betting around the Brownlow. So back in November, on November 14th, AFL umpire Michael Pell was among four people arrested by the Sporting Integrity Intelligence Unit of the state police in Victoria. Pell was alleged to have leaked votes in multiple games he officiated in 2022, his first year on the senior umpire list. I know the One of the ones that involved some big speculation was round 23 with Sydney and St. Kilda when the Swans won, but Saints got all six votes. I remember at the time, I thought it was like a little weird, but I I understood it. Like in the context of that game, the three best individual players were probably all Saints, whereas the Swans, it was a pretty full team effort. And 
Also, that was Dan Hanabry's finale, and he did go off. That too, but also like the Swans were kind of in a position where they didn't have a ton to play for. So they were able to kind of parcel things out a bit instead of really ride their biggest weapons. You know, yes, they could have maybe moved up from third to second, but it was in their best interest to kind of spread things out and make sure that guys were ready to go for the following week. That was the most important matter. So there there are some new details about this Brownlow investigation, though, that when Pell was on the emergency umpire list, those games that he worked last year, those votes may have been leaked and compromised as well. So this might be going a little deeper. Again, no indication of the vote count itself being impacted and no charges having been filed yet. But the fact that there's more being uncovered from this investigation likely means we're going to see something more substantial from Victoria Police sooner rather than later. I can't really think of any other umpiring scandals like this. You know, when it's about money going kind of underhanded like this, it makes me think of recruiting stuff in college football in a bygone era where name, image, and likeness wasn't permitted. That's still like a very rough comparison. Yeah, exactly. I think it's really its own thing that I really can't think of any comparison to, but it sparks discussions, you know, are the umpires the ones who are in the best position to determine this? I mean, yes, they have a really good angle on the field, don't get me wrong, but like, who would be the best and most qualified people to determine who the best players are? Because I can tell you this, with like baseball awards, the people who are voting on it are usually writers, some of which are old farts that haven't written shit in years and somehow keep their membership. They have no fucking right to be deciding these things and they have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. These are the people that vote on the Hall of Fame, for example. Hall of Fame, end of season awards, uh, gold gloves. Those might be... Gold glove is a fucking joke. I can't take that seriously. Yeah. Or best fielder, theoretically, and often it's just... Best player at that position regardless, which there's it, it's it's a whole can of worms. They there. have no credibility. Yeah. Just the question is kind of how to fix the Brownlow voting and who gets the votes in the first place. It's tough because, you know, look, the umpires spend most of the time in a spot on the ground where they focus on the midfield ahead of anywhere else. So of course they're the guys that get the award. Should we be putting more emphasis on, for example, the Lee Matthews trophy, which is the most valuable player as voted by as voted by the players. I think the best way to do it, I think it would be like a mix of, of, you know, like some maybe media people voting as well as umpires and maybe coaches and players and maybe just like, a you know, an expert panel of like some former players and stuff. I think a lot of times the best way to do it is like leave these things up to people who are very familiar with the game but have no active stake in it. Like, if you just set up, like, a couple of former players, kind of supervise each game and decide it, I think that would probably be the best way to do it. Former players who don't have any connection to those teams. Like, ha- have a committee of, like, past All-Australians running it, for example. Like, something like that? That would be one idea. I think you need to have a bunch of different perspectives considered. I still don't think this is going to affect, like, the sanctity or the... Prestige and the Brownlow. Yeah. And again, this the investigation is not about that side of it, but we might as well air our dirty laundry about the Brownlow now. But I think I think the one like long-term thing that could come out of this is maybe people look at the Brownlow with like a little bit of skepticism. But I don't think it's gonna like gonna take away from you know the like the prestige of the Brownlow in general. 
Some notable delistings, some more than others. I think few that kind of caught me off guard. Just kind of recapping this as we start looking toward start of the offseason program with training and things like that, because some of these guys are training with other teams and a couple of them have been signed elsewhere. I remember you had your opinions on a couple cats that were delisted and one of them has already found a permanent home. Yeah, Francis Evans already signed with the Port Adelaide senior list. I was thinking maybe they could have worked out a trade there. Evans, it was one of those, you know, by no fault of his own. It was just, you're stuck with some other really good players, and there just isn't much of a spot for you. And, you know, good problem for a club to have. As for Quentin Narkle, I had been hoping that the Eagles would take a flyer on him, try to bring him home in some sort of trade. Maybe there will be some space for that to happen in the offseason to acquire him and let him have a go at things. But the defensive side of his game has been sorely lacking pretty much every time we've seen him out there. Sounds like he's going to be getting a shot training with Richmond. Interesting. Thought he'd be wanting to go closer to home, but not entirely sure. Meanwhile, there's one Richmond guy that was delisted that you hoped Eddie Betts would be able to turn into something like he did Tyson Stengel, and that's Sidney Stack. It, it just would have made too much sense. Yeah. I remember Stack from getting into that bar fight on the Gold Coast alongside Callum Coleman-Jones, who's now over at North. Um, the other thing I remember Stack for was being part of the really cool ceremony ahead of Dreamtime at the G this year, where Richmond got around all their indigenous players. That might have been the single coolest photo of the season. Other interesting ones, Liam Stalker, who I think Blues fans had kept hyping up like he was going to be this great defender. He's now training with the Saints. Uh, Oleg Markov kind of fell off fast. I feel like he can totally resurface somewhere. Jed Anderson, who ended up signing on with Gold Coast as a rookie. Anderson was the one that I was a little surprised about with North. They delisted a couple others as well. Kane Turner, Josh Walker, Achubosenevalagi, who had kind of been a scapegoat in a couple games. I guess Anderson just didn't fit in with what Clarkson wanted. I'm not sure there. I think it'll be it'll be really interesting to see what Anderson does with a team where, you know, he's not going to be the only one who can be like a major ball winner and get really good possession numbers. The Suns are going to be one of the teams I think I'm going to be most intent on following this season with how they rose a bit last year. And yes, of course, they have something to make up with losing Isaac Rankin and not being able to have two high picks because Jack Bowes. But they have enough things that were going for them last year and with Ben King hopefully coming back that... I want to see them take another couple steps this year. Could it potentially be finals? Maybe. It's going to be cool because you have Anderson, who is this guy who, you know, I don't know if he was really that good of a player, but he racked up these big possession numbers, joining a team where you have a guy like Tuke Miller that's already doing that. So I think it could be just it's like, how is he going to get used? How is he going to fit into all of this? Between Miller, Noah Anderson, I think part of this is definitely going to mean that Anderson may have that ability to start a bit further back and kind of do that slingshot through the middle type deal that I've really liked from him. If Jed Anderson does crack the 22, I think it'll mean more off-ball time for Matt Rowell. This is going to be one of those things that either goes spectacularly for the Suns, like like how Levi Caswell did this past year on the rookie list. I was thinking more like, you know even though it was a trade, like kind of retribution for Will Brody, or it could just be one of those things that's very forgettable and it's like, oh, his possession numbers were just good because he was the least ugly girl at the dance and that's the end of it. Or 
there's somewhere to make a reference here over the really stupid, you know, the people getting all butthurt over the Isaac Quainer and Jack Ginnivan TikTok thing, and I'm not sure quite how to execute it. That was probably the stupidest moment of the entire season. A couple other notable D-list things that I want to mention quickly. Collingwood's Jack Magin fell a game short of gaining another year on his contract, which is probably the most unfortunate one of all of them. It's like, you know, in any movie where a police officer gets shot, you know, he was like two days from retirement. A couple former Eagles guys that couldn't find super steady spots. Alec Waterman at Essendon, despite being over a goal game there. And Jared Brander in limited time at GWS. Again, with the coaching changes there, not entirely surprised by either of those fringe guys. When it comes to Hawthorne, they're just fully committing to youth. They only have one player now at 30 or over on that list. That's Luke Bruce, which means that Tom Phillips has gone by the wayside there. You know what I like about what Hawthorne's doing? I said the last time we talked that I like that they realized what's the point of going all out to finish like eighth? What's the point of having a Honda if you can't show it off? No, the club's fully committing to this clearly, and the club structure needs to maintain this commitment for the next few years to see it bear fruit. They have a sense of direction. I like that. It's like over the last year, watching the Oakland A's throw out some of these old fucks last year was terrible. And I mean, if they win the draft lottery, which should be done between the time this is recorded and the time this is uploaded, it'll be kind of worth it. But I'd still, if you're going to suck, I'd rather suck with young guys than suck with old guys, which also kind of ties into you know my biggest criticism of the Eagles last year. But yeah, Hawthorne's fully adopting this identity. And the one thing that I think maybe they can try to do that they haven't really seemed to do is maybe try to like get a little more auctioning off some of these older guys. But I like what they're doing in general. Like, I thought they got a little less than they should have for Jack Gunston, I think it was. But other than that, you know, what they're doing checks out. Also, Fluffball got delisted. Hopefully he gets another shot somewhere. I think I need to make like a a team of guys that are like kind of marginal that I just like. Fluffball, Magic Daw. Well, Magic, I think, is officially retired now. But Mitch Wallace is someone that we gravitated toward pretty quickly in 2020. In part because decent player, in part because easy to recognize. Yeah, I mean, we had the fluffball sign and everything, too, that we saw. I think we mentioned, like, some of the funny signs when we talked about things that were good for footy way the hell back. What was that, like, episode two? Episode two. I'm not sure if we mentioned fluffball, but, you know, there were just some fans and some signs that you saw all the time two years ago because so many of the games were in Queensland. Like, that's why we saw Joe Exotic every week. Or, you know, even like in 2021, see, you know, the Saints, you bloody beauty sign. There, there's some really good ones. And, and yeah, go fluffball was one of them. And it would, you know, you kind of like think of him as, you know, being like a Pokemon or something. And just off that, I, I wanted him to be really good. Instead, I think he's just a football player, a 30 year old football player who spent 12 years at the club where his father played. Not no, a superstar, but no shame in it whatsoever. Solid career that, if if this is it, he'll be remembered. He might not be remembered, like, nationally, but Bulldogs fans will remember him. As we start looking toward the new season, as we kind of head for home on this episode, the first few days of training have passed for teams. Some notable players are on some delayed starts. Sam Walsh at Carlton, Jordan Goey at Collingwood, Jake Stringer at Essendon, who is seemingly always heard one week or the other now. Not much to make of things yet in 
general, but I find it interesting to note which aspects of training are emphasized compared to other sports. And a lot of it makes sense. Like you're not going to see AFL teams emphasize like a 40 meter dash. You're going to see them more interested in more stamina related things like a two kilometer time trial. And I've seen enough fans kind of obsessing over those results already that it makes me think of NFL combine stuff. We don't really seem to have best shape of his life season, though. That's kind of a baseball exclusive thing. Every year you get to hear about which guys show up to spring training in the best shape of their life. You know, it's like every year someone shows up to spring training in the best shape of their life. It's kind of a running gag. Every team has that guy every year. It's There doesn't really seem to be much of an equivalent of that. I can't really think of too much of an equivalent that other sports really have. I mean... I guess like college football, you know, a player shows up to camp with 20 more pounds of muscle or something, but we don't seem to have, you know, best shape of his life season. No, as of now, we just have mostly injury news, which includes the one that we alluded to at the top of the program, and we kind of touched on already with, with Max King. That's really the big story to come out of training thus far. Last thing is kind of a first thing, looking ahead to round one of the 2023 AFL season, which was unveiled for some reason early in the morning as Australia kicked off in the World Cup against Argentina. That made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Oh, it's like the NFL does stuff like that all the time where it's like, fuck you, we're more important. Was this so that the papers could have stuff for the morning? I'm not entirely sure. Did the Herald Sun prompt this? Regardless, we've got the opening round fixture. Richmond and Carlton traditionally kick off the season. They do that again on Thursday night at the G. The next night, Geelong hosts Collingwood, and I put hosts in air quotes because it's at the G. Four games on Saturday, North and West Coast in the afternoon at Marvel, Port and Brisbane at the Adelaide Oval, and then two night games that overlap, Demons and Dogs at the G, Suns and Swans out at Metricon, three overlapping games on the Sunday, GWS and Adelaide at Giants Stadium, Hawthorne and Essendon at the G, and St. Kilda and Fremantle at Marvel to cap things off. I do like some aspects of this schedule. You got the traditional Thursday opener, and it's actually an opener. You've got rematches of a couple good recent round ones flipped. Essendon and Hawthorne played that crazy round one a couple years ago with a huge comeback. And last year, Port and Brisbane had a late turn as well. That was at the Gabba. This one's going to be in Adelaide. And the Ross Lion Cup to finish things off between the Saints and Dockers is an inspired choice. Unfortunately, though, no games in the West because of concerns of how ready the Optus Stadium field is going to be after an Ed Sheeran concert. And also, no Victorian teams are going to have to travel at all, which is just a side effect of everything, I guess. I have totally missed, when we first looked through this, that Port and Brisbane are playing in round one for the second year in a row. That I like. Yeah, totally. I mean... Again, it was one of those matches that's being flipped from last year. The other thing that I really like about that, you know, you've got a Port team that's going to kind of try to get back on track after a disappointing year. We'll be talking a bunch in the lead up to the season about whether or not we think they can actually do that. I'm leading no. And a Brisbane team that's, you know, I think they've put themselves in position to get over the hump. But I want to talk about the Cats getting that first match against Collingwood. I think the Lions would have been the more appropriate opponent. I like the idea of the reigning Premier's first game being against either a big rival or a team they beat in finals. Yeah, I was hoping for the Lions as well, as I'll get into in a bit, but I don't know. This isn't really going to be a home game for Geelong. Yeah, I mean, even if, you know, you have 
pregame flag stuff. It's still not quite, still not quite the full deal. And I don't think they're going to be doing that actually for this first round. I think they're waiting to do it until they do have a home game at Cardania from some reports that I've seen. Yeah, so that's, I don't know. I feel like that's kind of, at least the last couple of years we've seen, you know, reigning premiers get to open the season with a home game to celebrate. And that's something that happens in the NFL as well. Now, in other major North American sports, those teams, you know, the reigning premier doesn't necessarily play their first game at home. But if that is a trend, then I think it should be at Cardinia, whether it's against Collingwood or somebody else. So that's why, like, the Lions at Cardinia would have made sense. You know, there is the uncertainty over when Cardinia is going to be, you know, fully finished, if it's going to be before the start of the season, a few weeks in. So I get that element of it, but I feel like this isn't quite the right opponent for round one, kind of having, you know, your victory lap. But I feel like that's a consistent Geelong thing. It's like you're constantly going to be in a battle with the AFL over home sites for your biggest games and things like that. Or it's I think it's more for the fans to be upset about than the club because the club higher up seem generally okay with things. Speaking of home locations and stuff, I just want to talk about how ridiculous it is that Richmond were so adamant to keep an AFLW final at Punt Road when they're always, you know, no, we have to be at the MCG. And it's like, I like Richmond as a club overall. I'm, you know, in the few years we've been watching, they've been a gold standard for success. I love the way they're bridging the gap between their older and younger core and making that transition. But I think I'm just going to be clowning them until the end of time over they're acting like every game they play has to be at the G and then having this complete 180 for the women. I mean, I think the point was trying to keep it at home. I mean, of course, you're not going to normally be using the G for a women's competition unless the crowd is really expected. And sadly, that hasn't happened yet. No, but it, like they could have put it at a site that at least held a few more thousand. Punt Road has a decent capacity. I'm, I forget what Prince's Park or the North Port Oval have. Also, just I wish that Brighton Homes Arena had more of like an all-seater type feel because I don't feel like it seemed quite adequate enough for the for the grand final on that. That was a fucking joke. Yeah. I'm not even going to get into, you know, all the low-hanging fruit of, you know, the final score of an AFLW match being like the first quarter score of a men's match. That's a totally different discussion, but like it's hard to take this seriously when that's the site for your grand final. I get that a lot of the bigger facilities, the bigger cricket ovals aren't available in this time of the season because they're being used for cricket. But maybe that also draws into question why the women's competition is being played at this time of year in the first place. You know, you could have the foresight if you want to do it as a neutral site. You could have, you know, you can definitely talk with one of the bigger stadiums and say, you know, we're going to host it here. But what I would do is rotate it each year between different locations, whereas, you know, the AFL Grand Final is going to be at the G for the foreseeable future. You know, you could bounce around the Women's Grand Final, you know, one year do it in Sydney, one year do it in Perth, you know, have it as a designated site each year, kind of like the Super Bowl does. And it could be the, you know, AFLW's own thing, but you know, to play it at a larger stadium and have, you know, prestigious events leading up to it and things like that, instead of playing it at a place where most of the seats are just on a lawn, which is give it a bit more of a sense of dignity. Dignity kind of 
make it feel a bit more official. Again, not to not to try and offend any player or patron of the women's game. It's great to see it grow as it has, but I think there needs to be more support on this run in terms of the venues. It needs to look more serious. Like the women's final four, there were talks about kind of putting it in like the same side as the men's final four. And there were a lot of people who were against that because it would kind of become a side attraction. And I'm totally down with it being, you know, at its own location. And it tends to sell out, you know, an NBA slash NHL arena. So quick explainer, the final four for men's college basketball is usually played in like a giant domed football stadium that holds, you know, with, you know, they bring in some temporary seating around the basketball court and there are some seats that are really far away. This past year it was at the Superdome, but it ends up usually, you know, having between 60 and 100,000 people there. They don't need that for the women, but you put it in, you know, like an 18 to 20,000 seat arena and it sells out and it's great. And I think if they were able to do something like that with AFLW, you know, whether it's be it like a place that's maybe Sydney showground size or something like that, I think it would be awesome. But this playing in a, what, eight, 10,000 seat place with very few actual seats doesn't feel like it gives the game the kind of the space it deserves. It makes it feel like very unofficial. It's like some of the, you know, kind of like minor football leagues in America. What what league was it? It's so irrelevant, I can't even remember. That, that did all its games in like one spot. USFL had all their games in Birmingham this past year. Okay. And, but USFL, XFL, when they were in bigger stadiums, they would often just like have just like the lower deck or lower two decks open. You see that for MLS games here as well, where like typically Seattle Sounders games have just the lower deck of the Seahawks stadium open. Okay, but like the XFL playing at the DC United Stadium, that worked. You know, using like the soccer specific stadiums, you know, like a 20-ish thousand seat stadium. That was awesome. Cup snakes aplenty. But yeah, the 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 USFL, they played the entire season in Birmingham. So any game that didn't involve the Birmingham team, nobody showed up. And then they couldn't play the playoffs in Birmingham because the stadium was being used for the world games, which is like not the Olympics. It's like sports that can't get into the Olympics. Yeah, so they, they were using the stadium for flag football and they used the other stadium for drone racing. That's what it was. Yeah, so instead they played the playoffs in Canton, Ohio. It was just like, it, it gives off that energy, and that's not a good thing. Point is, give the women's finals the grounds they deserve. And this is deserved in a positive sense, you know, give them a better space. Because they've drawn well when they've been given the capacity. Had we recorded a little earlier, I would have done more about what matchups I would have wanted to see in the opening round, but I did do a mock-up of that ahead of this one. I do think there were some smart choices here. Obviously, you start with Richmond and Carlton, Hawthorne and Essendon with what rivalry that is, St. Kilda and Fremantle. As we had talked about before, Geelong and Brisbane would have been the move and at Cardinia Park. You know, let the team that just won the flag open truly at home. You're going to be able to draw a big crowd against Collingwood at the G regardless, but it's mostly going to be Collingwood fans. I think it'll be 50-50 or maybe even because of the post-flag celebration could be a bit more Geelong heavy, but um, 
I would love to do it against the Lions, and you know, it would it could be a tribute not just to the finals run, but the actual home meeting with the Lions last year, and have the real star of the show, construction guy, there. Honestly, have construction guy just like unfold the flag or something like that, and give it to Joel Selwood to raise. He needs to have like a minor but noticeable role. There are, like, little elements like that from last season that need to be commemorated and celebrated. Yeah, construction guy giving the flag to Joel and Sam. Sam Morefoot. Yes. To have them race together. I would have loved to have seen North and Port in round one as well for all the pettiness surrounding Jason Horn Francis, all the drama with that. And also having North unveil all the players they got from the trade period against him would have been fun, too. Now, we had talked originally about the idea of having, like, West Coast and Port matchup, but with the Ed Sheeran factor, making Optus probably unusable for round one, that wouldn't quite have the same charm if they played in Adelaide. So, instead, Port playing North makes a little more sense for this. That I would have wanted was, again, just to have more Victorian teams playing out of state. Melbourne and Sydney had two great meetings at the G this past year. Why not have them play at the SCG round one? A grand final rematch isn't the way to go. And yeah, have an out-of-state grand finalist have their first game at home as well. Oh, absolutely. Again, I think a grand final rematch needs a few rounds to really build up the hype from within the season as well. I get it last year when, you know, you couldn't have the Victorian fans there for the grand final itself when it was across the country. Yeah, I think it depends. I think some years it would make sense more than others. This year, I don't see it. I'll link to this as well. I'll, I'll post this on Twitter at Americans Footy, but other matchups I would have wanted. I decided to end up having West Coast playing Collingwood because of how much of a weird game that was last year. That was a Marvel game. And yeah, I remember being like having little to no hope entering that game and being completely shocked as I was celebrating in my room in Berkeley. I doubt that I'll expect that again. And rather than Port opening at home, I would have had the Crows hosting the Giants. Because I think those are two teams that will deserve a fair amount of comparison this year with where they are in their rebuilds and just being younger sides in general. One last thing about the schedule, I am glad that the Suns are starting at home. Because, again, they're, I think, a team that's going to be one of my biggest focuses this year, and probably yours as well. And hopefully they get the crowds they deserve, which are, you know, big crowds, sellout crowds, or or close to it, for things other than Q-Clash, where they're outnumbered anyway. I think I'm thinking a little too optimistically, though. Now, here's a fun question. Do you like matching up, you know, teams that were both bad last year in round one? Kind of like, you know, you had North and Hawthorne matchup in round one in 2022. Or do you like kind of, who would you throw like a team like Essendon or the Giants against? You know, would you throw them against other teams that are expected to be non-finalists? Or do you look at throwing them against someone... I don't know. I think you have to mix it up a little bit. I think you need to have a little bit of both if possible. You know, having those finals rematches or notable rematches from the past season are good things, I think. But you can't just have bad teams from last year playing other bad teams. Spread those things out. You need to spread everything out to an extent. That's why I'm saying, you know, have a, a finals rematch for the Premiers, but don't have their grand final rematch for another few rounds. Again, there are some years where I think a grand final rematch to open would make sense. I don't know if this would be one of those. All I know is that unless you've got a South Australian team in there, don't have it in the Magic Round. I am totally in favor of the concept of the Magic Round, by the way. It's going to be weird having, you know, an uneven number of games now, though, 23. Ryan, are you in favor of the Magic Round? Is that what that was? I can't quite tell based on that. 
The real dilemma here will be how to decide which team gets which stadium because, you know, you're not going to be able to put everything at the Adelaide Oval. That field will just get torn up. And so you have to make some sacrifices in terms of who's playing at what facility. You know, is it going to be based on fan base size overall within South Australia as to who gets some of the country sites? One thing that I would like to see, though, as part of it is Showdown getting a standalone slot during the Magic Round. I think that would be a great centerpiece. What's weird with that, with Showdown, is like what it does to, you know, the number of home and away games. But if Showdown is going to be part of the Magic Round, that is pretty cool because it's such a fun matchup in general. And for a round to be totally centered around South Australia, I feel like that would be totally right to have happen. And I like the idea of having a neutral site game if you're going to have these, you know, odd numbers of games. Like for the NFL now with 17 games, basically some teams have nine home games and some have eight. I feel like if you're going to have an odd number of games, you can fix it by having neutral site games, which you know the NHL experimented with at one point. I think it's a cool idea. Like with the NFL, how much they're promoting international games and stuff, it would be really easy for every team's 17th game to be, you know, if not an international game, just like somewhere different. You know, there are more than enough suitable venues between college stadiums and things like that where you'd be able to make it work. Maybe the match ground will provide an opportunity like that. More details on that front will certainly emerge within this week or so when we expect the full fixture to be announced and the times potentially for up to the first 15 rounds. We'll come to you once that is out, maybe a little bit after that. I think that's going to just about do it for this time, though. Just kind of a post-draft and December check-in, kind of catching up and giving some of our thoughts on the happenings as we see it from across the Pacific. You probably know where to find us, but, you know, Twitter, at Americans Footy, Instagram, Cat Name Brian, Twitter, Castle Media, and Benjamin HK01. We're going to end this episode similar to how we started it.